Lord Jesus, we praise you for the truth of those words that through the power of your death, burial, and resurrection, we have life. We have a life that is eternal, a life that cannot be confounded, questioned, or taken from us through the circumstances of this present age. So we just thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you for that joy, that peace that comes from knowing you. We thank you that we who have been given the gift of faith to believe that our hope is in you, that we are forever yours. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that our time together would lead us to acknowledge our, um, just our life is yours and just to um, live for your kingdom. To, to just put our lives in, in proper perspective. We have been raised from death to life to live for you. So help us to do that. Help us to say no to our sinful ways, the temptations of our flesh, to live for your glory and your glory alone. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, again, good morning. It's so good to be with you. Um, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. I didn't properly introduce myself earlier. Uh, Pastor Kyle, who so often welcomes us into worship and leads us into worship, is um, operating our technical side of things and getting, uh, making sure that we can, um, you can see us, those of you that are with us online, and so, um, so thankful to be with you. Um, if you would grab your Bibles right now and turn to Amos chapter 4. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Amos, and as you're grabbing your Bibles, I'm going to grab my podium, and uh, we'll begin our time together in the Word. So if you've been with us for um, a number of weeks at least, um, you know that we are in a book of the Bible called Amos. And um, this book we um, took a uh, brief break from last weekend, so thankful uh, for Brother Kent and uh, his uh, just um, gift to, to lead and to teach us um, and to proclaim the goodness of God and um, just the power of the gospel. And so I pray that if you missed that, um, with being with us last weekend, uh, that as I did, that you would jump online and uh, make, make that message available. Um, we have that on our website, on our podcast. You can find our podcast on um, any of the platforms that podcasts are available. Um, but you can also go to our website, citychurchmelissa.com, and you can uh, view and, and, and listen to uh, that message there along with with all of our previous messages in the book of Amos. And so that's where we're picking back up uh, in this book in chapter 4. And I am going to begin this morning with the end of this book, um, the, the last verse, because it is, uh, a sense, in a sense, a, um, a bookmark. Or uh, in my, uh, my grandfather's house, uh, there was these two horses and they held up all of the books on his bookshelf, and I can still see those horses. They were uh, majestic, and they was the bookends that held everything together on the shelf. And in some senses, our text this morning, Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, 13 sort of encapsulates the two ends and holds what we will read um, and hear the rest of in the earlier verses together. 
And then so in Amos chapter 4, verse 13, Amos declares, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. He asks this question in a sense, and it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. As we have worked our way through this book, we have seen that Amos is um, bringing the sinfulness of his people and the people of the earth to their forefront, proclaiming that, declaring that the world is full of sin. And because of the sins of the world, God must judge these sins. And so we began this study talking about the fact, and in Amos chapter 1, essentially Amos encapsulating again the entirety of his teaching by saying that God is not unaware of sinfulness. God does not just look away from that, but God sees it, he will judge it, and he will ultimately bring justice. And as we think about all of the things that are going on in our world, it seems that everyone wants to know what is right and wants to do what is right. And in, uh, very often we seem to be doing whatever we think is right in our own minds, which is from the, book of the, from the Bible. We, we know that we are tempted so often to do that. And God says that there is a way of living and a way of life that he has called his people to, a holiness that he has called us to that is completely other than anything that we experience or we see in our own lives or that we would desire within our flesh. So often, as I think I said two weeks ago, um, it just comes back up again over and over as I study this book. When I think about how I should live my life and what I should be doing, I sort of have a, a common litmus test for that. And I think to myself, as an, uh, as an opportunity or a decision comes to the forefront of my mind, and I'm thinking, okay, should I go to the left or should I go to the right here? I think, what do I want to do? And if I, in my flesh, and I say, I really want to go to the left, then I just know I better go to the right. Because I always, very often, I'm going to choose the wrong thing if I'm leaning on what I want to do. Uh, just last week, praise God, I was able to uh, take a, a little vacation with my family. And um, if you've been with us for any time, you can just say, where would Ryan go on vacation? If Ryan's making the decision, you know it's going to be to the mountains. And so we were able to go to uh, the mountains, just a beautiful location. And as we came to the end of that week, I came to a decision. What do I want to do? I want to stay here forever. I just want to live in this place simply and just let go of everything else in the world. But as my wife so graciously reminded me and my kids as well, you can't just leave. You have to, you have a calling, you have a job, you have a, there's, there's something to do. And so, yes, I had to pack up and come on back home. And uh, I am grateful to be here, but I do miss those mountains. So as we think about and we live our lives, there is a calling on our lives and a way that we are to live. And Amos has been bringing to the forefront the sinfulness of the people and as I've said over and over again, Amos is just continually sort of narrowing the funnel. He started with a broad teaching on the sins of the nations, then narrowed that down to the sins of Israel. And here in chapter 4, he gets very specific to the sins. The, the sins that were listed out earlier in chapters 2 and 3 of Israel, they are narrowed down in a sense to these specific sins that he is, God is speaking against the people of Israel and I would suggest that in this chapter, these sins that are listed out are as applicable today as they have been ever in life. 
One of the things that I've noticed just in social media is that we are looking for wisdom and, and instruction, and, and, and rightfully so. And sometimes we're looking to um, prophets of old and, 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 and uh, authors and people who have written things in the past, and we're thinking, does this apply? Can you see the forethought that they had? Must, must have been a prophetic word. Well, here in Amos, we have a prophetic word that was sp- spoken to the people of Israel, but so clearly speaks to the challenges within our world today and specifically even within the people of God, the church. And so as Amos ends this section, verses 1 through 13, he's asking the questions, who has the right to judge? Who knows all of these things? Who can make the morning dark? It's the God of hosts. He knows these things, and we would be right to humble ourselves before God in that. And so, he begins in verse 1. If we go back to the beginning of this section, the beginning of chapter 4, he lists out, and there are three sins that Amos is going to highlight of the people of Israel in this text. So first we look at the first three verses. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. The first sin that, it, that Amos addresses within the people of Israel, and he does it very graphically, and a little bit as we might, as we're going to see here in just a moment, pretty harshly, using language that we would not dare to use ourselves, but clearly, as I said, Amos is speaking for God. This is the word of God to the people of Israel And he's attacking their indulgence, the luxury that they are living in. And he uses words, he says to the wives that are demanding that their husbands bring that we may drink, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He describes the wealthy lounging around in all of their luxury and demanding that they just be brought food and drink. And he declares, he calls them cows. Now, I learned very early on to never, ever use that word in that way. That is not kind. That is not gracious. That is not a good word to use. And yet God describes the people of Israel and specifically the wives that are demanding that they can sit around and just be brought food and drink And he addresses them as cows. Now, this is not in any sense a physical description. Let's be clear about that. This was not about the way they looked. No, this was a description of their spiritual condition, their hearts. Because they had accumulated all of this wealth. And they were taking advantage of the weak, those who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. And then say to your husbands, bring me that we may drink. What Amos is describing, what God is saying to his people is you're fattening yourself up like the cows. And ultimately, you're fattening yourselves up and there will come a day of slaughter. There will come a day where because of the way that you misuse your wealth, misuse the just the blessings that I have poured upon you, there will be a day of judgment. And the sins that have led to this, the sins that are becoming manifest. 
as you sit in your luxury and care less about the poor and the needy and only care about serving yourselves, those sins will be judged. And ultimately, when he says, as he prophesies, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, he's going to describe what is going to happen to them. And notice again, God swears by his holiness. It is God's holiness that he has called his people to live in. And as Amos described earlier, God had done so many things for the people of Israel to to set them apart and to call them holy and to make them a people of his own possession, a people for his purposes and his glory. And it's his holiness that is at stake. And God, as we have said over and over again, God will not allow his holiness to be tarnished. He will not allow his name to be taken in vain. And so often we think about taking the Lord's name in vain as cussing or some using some language. But we take the Lord's name in vain when we take the holiness that he has ascribed to us and he has called us to live in. And we describe ourselves as Christians or as God's people. And we do not care or live as if we care about the things that God cares about. And so he says, by his holiness, because you have forsaken my holiness and the holiness that I have ascribed and called you to live in, there will be judgment. The days are coming. And what will they do? They will take you away with hooks, even the last of you fish hooks. The Assyrians would come and they would conquer Israel and the cows of Bashan. They would be most often the Assyrians where they would take people uh, in, as, as slaves or they would uh, conquer them and then take them into uh, to slavery or captivity. They would lead them out of their countries. They would place rings in their noses or rings in their lips and they would lead them on chains into their captivity and possibly even ultimately to their death. That's how the Assyrians conquered people. And so they would shame their people. They would uh, just make them to be as low as they could be. And so these people who had wasted everything on their own indulgence had taken all of the luxuries of God's favor on their life and his blessings and used them for their own accord and then forgotten to care about the things that God cares about, had lost the holiness that he had called them to live in, they ultimately would be conquered. Their sin would be judged. And so as we think about the luxury that we live in and the way that we have dealt with the favor of God, the blessing, when we think of financial blessing and the freedoms that we enjoy and all of these things, have we become like the Israelites where all we do is we ask, where is my next drink? Come and serve me. I don't care about anyone else. I care about what I want. I care about winning and I care about having my desires met. That's what it means to live in luxury. And consider all that we do, all that we do to chase after being served, getting what we want. We will take on in this country at least and so often in really the Western world any amount of debt to live in the comfort that we desire. Any amount of anything that we can take on whether it's debt, whether it's overworking ourselves, anything that we do so that we can continue to live in luxury. And what is luxury? What does that word mean? Luxury has its roots in the Latin word that means excess. 
the industrial magnate, the, the, one of the great leaders of our early um, sort of industrialization of our nation, Andrew Carnegie, said, surplus wealth is a sacred trust which its possessor is bound to administer in his lifetime for the good of the, of the community. But so often we take all of the excess and all of the luxury in our lives and we only want to use it to further our own luxury, further our own lifestyles, our own indulgences. Carnegie said it well, but Paul said it even better in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. God isn't condemning luxury in the sense of the possessions or the blessings and all, or, or the wealth that we in, enjoy, the riches of our lives, which we all have in whatever degree in this life, in, this, in, in the context of Collin County in America, we are wealthy. And yet, do we forget, have we forgotten the needs of others? Do we forget the poor? And do we just live to just further our own kingdoms rather than living for the kingdom of God? That was what Israel had done. And we would be wise to hear the warning of God to Israel when he says that he will ultimately judge that and they will be conquered and everything will be taken away. The next sin that Israel deals with begins in verse 4 and following through 6. They say, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. I gave you cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, you, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. See, Amos is describing now as he as first addressed their luxury and their excess and their, how they have forgotten the holiness that they have been called to. He now addresses the hypocrisy of their worship. I have given you all of this blessing and this favor and your wealth and you have used it to forget who I am and you have used it to serve yourself only and now that has crept in to the way that you worship. And they would say, this is Israel in a sense, God quoting them again somewhat rhetorically saying, you say come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and you multiply your transgressions because you bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. You offer sacrifices of thanksgiving of that which is leaven and you proclaim free will offerings and you publish them because you love to do that. See, the crowds, they would make their way to these holy places, Bethel, the house of God, Gilgal, these holy places, and they would bring their sacrifices and their tithes, and they would give money. They would bring them regularly, every three days, it says, and that was even more, by the way, than what was required by the law. So they were going above and beyond in doing all of these things. They'd give the money. They would bring sacrifices. But it says that it would multiply. These things ultimately were not seen by God as something that would, um, would satisfy him. But ultimately, they multiplied the transgressions of the people. 
They multiplied the sins in his mind because they did all of these things with an unclean heart because they like to publish them, as he says, for you love to do that. God is condemning them for they're filled with pride and their worship is completely hypocritical. They were doing what they were doing simply to be acknowledged by men, to be acknowledged by the world. And God is calling them out for being insincere in their worship. They were not doing what they were doing to bring glory to God, but ultimately to bring glory to themselves. Jesus, as we read from Matthew chapter 6, addresses this. That they should not give by throwing their um, money into the trumpets. Those were jars that would make a sound as people gave. And the, the, the people of, of Jesus' day were, were known to do that so that everybody could look and see, oh, look, they gave some money. They were doing what they should be doing. This should teach us that God is not pleased with a hypocritical, uh, hypocritical worship. If our hearts are not his, if our hearts are not filled with, in awe and in filled with worship of him, he bring, there's nothing that, that brings him joy in that. God is not impressed with the production of our shows. This is something that we have to deal with, friends. The Bible Belt produced a generation of churchgoers who were there because it was culturally expected for them to be there. It was politically expedient to be there. It was the place where they could only, the only place where they could demonstrate their own righteousness. That's something that is just the reality of, of what, what, what came and, and is a part of our history. But God is after pure and obedient hearts. Not those that just do it for show. God is not impressed with our shows. God desires our hearts. And you know, as we think about our own lives we love to share the Bible verses on social media, to let people know what we believe when all God really wants is us to store his word up in our hearts and to live in accordance with his word and to live and be directed by his word alone. How often we spend so much time, as it's been often said in recent days, on Twitter and Facebook, and Instagram, and social media, and our Bibles are collecting dust. Hours and hours upon end, in one place, when the word of God sits unopened. This is hypocritical for us to proclaim that we are, are uh, God's people, and living for him, and following him, when we do not listen to his words. Like the Israelites, we can show up in mass, we can sing songs or at least act like we're singing songs. We can give some money, perhaps even a lot of money, and our hearts not be changed. We would be wise to ask ourselves, is that our hearts? Where are our hearts? So often when we show up to worship, I think the questions that we leave with, did I like that? Did I have a good time? Did that place serve me? Did it do what I wanted it to do? Did they say the things that I wanted them to say? When we should be asking, when we leave, do I know God better? Am I more like Jesus because I was with his people? 
A religious gathering that doesn't cause our hearts to change and to value the things that God values is futile. It's an exercise in futility, and we fool ourselves if we think that God is pleased by a hypocritical worship. So often we are accused by the outside world of being hypocrites. And here God is saying within the body of Christ, within his people, the Israelites, you do all of these things feigning worship and acting as if you're following after me, and I know your hearts are insincere. We would be right to ask those questions, look introspectively at our own hearts. When is the last time that you came to worship and you dealt with your own sins and not the sins of others? You hear the word of God preached and you think, man, I hope my neighbor heard that rather than internalizing it and saying, yes, Lord, that is me. When was the last time that you were broken before God and you allowed him to bind you up? When was the last time that leaving a worship, you were compelled to serve others more faithfully? If our time together doesn't produce heart change, then God was not involved because that is exactly what God does. He changes hearts If our hearts were not changed, we just participated in a religious exercise. One commentator said it's this, whether it's evangelism, education, social action, world missions, or feeding the hungry, everything the church accomplishes for the Lord flows out of worship. If the fountainhead of worship is polluted, the church's entire ministry will be defiled. If our worship, if our hearts are not centered on worshiping the Lord sincerely and rightly, then everything we do, as he says, will be defiled because it will all stem from a heart of serving ourselves. Luxury creeps in and we say, I want to just further that. I want to keep the luxury. I want to keep the excess. I want to keep everything that satisfies me. And those types of hearts then come into worship and think, how can I continue to do that? I want everything to be built around satisfying me. Always inward. Finally, Amos deals with a third sinfulness after dealing with the luxury, excess, then hypocrisy in worship. He gets to this longer section where he recounts, in a sense, just the stubbornness, the obstinance, of Israel. Again, back to verse 6 where he begins this transition. I gave you cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on the city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees and the locust devoured, yet you did not return Turn to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence among the manor of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. 
God, after earlier in this book, Amos recounted all of the ways that God had blessed his people to set them apart, to call them to himself. And he, and he says, Israel, you forgot all of those things. Now here, God is saying, sort of taking the opposite approach, look at all that I did to try to wake you up. To, to, to draw you out of your excess, to draw you out of your hypocrisy, I, I brought this punishment and this punishment and this judgment and this way of trying to wake you up. I did all of these things and every time you failed, you did not return to me. Amos is rebuking the sin of their stubbornness. How often, parents, have we tried to correct our children and we correct and we correct, and we correct, and we correct, and we try this, and we try that, and yet they don't seem to learn the lesson. What does that cause? We, our frustration just multiplies. So often I tell my kids, and I, I, this is you know, something I'm not proud of, but when my anger seems to get the best of me, it usually is rooted in 10 other conversations prior that have led up to that moment where it's just, a, a, it's like a, I'm a, a, a Coke pop just popping off the top. Now, that's not the right way to do things, but it leads up to you, the frustration of God. We can imagine. Imagine God's frustration with his people after doing all that he did to bless them and then doing all that he did to wake them up and to tell them, I am God. I am all you need. Stop chasing after all of these things. Stop looking so inwardly and look to me alone. He did all these things, and in their stubbornness, they would not return to him. They would not fall on their knees and worship Famine, drought, destruction, sickness, war, catastrophe, judgment, on and on. And Israel would not return and follow the Lord and the Lord alone. Does God have our attention? Has he awakened us? So often, again, early in this pandemic, we thought that God, and we would say, very often on social media, we would declare that God had waken us up, he was getting our attention, pandemic, racial unrest, political unheaval, upheaval. I saw this week, just wondering what will be the next thing to drop in 2020, who knows? But God just seems to be bringing all of these things, allowing all of these things to, to hit our world and hit our lives. And will we return? Will we look to God? Will we acknowledge our sinfulness and humble ourselves before God and follow him? I believe this is a question that's worthwhile asking, considering what is God doing? What is God teaching us? Is God showing us and reminding us to put our hope in him and in him alone? This is a worthwhile question. So let us just take inventory of our lives. Yes. Let us take inventory of our lives. Are we living in excess? Is the luxury of this world, has it captured our hearts and minds in a way that we cannot see what God is doing? We've forgotten God and we've forgotten the giver of all life and the giver of all things. Do we enter into worship hypocritically looking again to just be served, to please ourselves? And as long as the things that we want happen, we're happy. And when they don't, we're unhappy. Or do we come into the presence of the Lord seeking to be humbled, allowing God to teach us, instruct us, to shape our hearts, to be holy like his, to care about the things that he cares about? And as we look to our lives and we see these moments of awakening, these opportunities to be shaken a little bit loose from these foundations that we've built for ourselves to stand firmly on the foundation of God, do we just continually to say no to the Lord and run away, 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 away? 
We should consider these things. We should repent. And as we repent, we should know that, that the Lord is gracious to forgive our sins because he is God. And that is why Amos closes this section of stronger rebuke by, in a sense, worshiping the Lord. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to the man what is his thought. The one who spoke the mountains into existence, the one who creates the wind that we cannot see, the one who knows all of our thoughts, knows the most inward thoughts, the depths of our hearts, who also has the power to take the morning sun and make it dark. He treads on the mountaintops. He can ascend any height. The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. We would be right when we consider, when we see our sinfulness, to humble ourselves before God and as Amos does here, to worship him, to acknowledge his power and his might. Even in the face of calamity, in the face of adversity, in the face of, again, that wrestling of our hearts, that sinfulness, knowing that we are, God is doing work, we should sing praise to God. We should worship him. Jan Hus, an early preacher of God's word from the 15th century, like many of his era, he preached against the Pope and his selling of indulgences, which was essentially you could pay a certain sum of money to the church to be freed from the guilt of your sins. And because he preached against the Pope when the king wanted to go get some indulgences, kings in that day and age were often in need of being freed from their sinfulness or being freed from the guilt that they felt from their sinfulness. So they'd go to the Pope and they'd pay a certain sum of money to do that. And so Hus would uh, preach against this. And so he was deemed a heretic by the king for proclaiming God's word and condemning this practice. And so he was led to the stake to be burned. And even as the flames engulfed him, it is recounted that he was singing the Psalms, singing to God, singing praise. What great faith it takes when it seems that it all is lost to praise God. As we consider our own sinfulness and what we see in the world, in light of what Amos spoke against Israel, we might feel like everything is lost. And yet we, in faith, can sing to God. We can praise him. We can close with a doxology of worship because we know that God is powerful and God can do all things. He can even redeem a sinner like me. And because of that, when I come face to face with my sin, I'm not caused to just melt away and to think that all is lost. But I turn to the one who redeemed my sins and I worship him and I acknowledge my sins before God and I thank God for the hope of Christ because in spite of all that I see in front of me, I know that I know that I know that I have hope and I have hope in him alone. We will one day, friends, we will praise Jesus bowed at his feet. We will be humbled before him. God can do anything. He can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in Christ, he has. So let's let the Lord shape our hearts. Let's turn away from our excess. 
Let's be fully devoted worshipers of him. And when God is speaking, let us hear from him and let us turn from our ways to acknowledge his ways. And let us be people who worship rightly so that out of our worship, evangelism, education, social action, world mission, feeding the hungry, and everything else that we do might be seasoned with his hope, with his love, with his mercy, with worship rooted in him and in him alone. Let's pray that that would be so in our church and in the world today. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, a word that rebukes, corrects, teaches, challenges us. We thank you that your word is true. We pray that we would be a people that would just acknowledge our own sins, acknowledge the sinfulness of our hearts. Would you help us to repent today, to just confess those things before you? Help us to lay down our excess, the luxuries of our lives. Just give them over to you to be used solely by you. You're not condemning our wealth. You're condemning the hearts that live to just further that excess rather than furthering your kingdom with it. Would you cleanse us of any hypocrisy in our hearts as we worship you? We want to worship you with pure hearts, Lord. And would you make us attentive to when you're speaking? Yes, Lord, there are many circumstances in our world right now that should have shaken us a little bit, shaken the foundations perhaps of the way we thought, the way we looked at the world. So help us to not be stubborn, to just assume that there's nothing that you could be up to in all of this. But let us believe and trust that you are always at work. And as we come before you, Lord, we worship you because when we, we know that when we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. You are merciful. So we praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to live in light of that mercy every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.